0: Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for making this part of your Easter celebration. We're glad that you're with us. We've been just rejoicing and praising God all morning. It's, it's just been amazing. We, uh, we started a few weeks ago a series called The Greatest Week in History. And we started with the triumphal entry of Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. On a colt of a donkey. And the people were shouting, Hosanna. The people were shouting, Son of David. Many were recognizing, hey, he is the Messiah. And then every Sunday, we've been looking at a different day leading up to this weekend. And last Sunday, we ended with Thursday night, when Jesus gathered his disciples into the upper room. And while they were there, they were actually celebrating Passover, which is a Jewish holiday, commemorating how God had delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And he took a couple of parts of that meal, the cup and some bread, and during the Passover meal, he instituted a new remembrance for his followers. We call it communion And he did that with the bread and the cup. And he said, this is going to be a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. This will commemorate that. And of course, the Passover was all about sin and substitution and and shedding blood just as a temporary covering, teaching us how serious sin is. But he said, in in my body, and my blood, something new is going to happen. As as it got later, Thursday evening, Jesus leaves that room and actually goes outside the city. Before he goes, though, he lets the disciples know that one of them would betray him. They leave the city, probably through the eastern gate. They go through a small valley called the Kidron Valley and then up the slope of the Mount of Olives, where you could kind of overlook Jerusalem from. But, and about two-thirds up that slope, there is a, a garden grove, uh, an olive grove called Gethse- Gethsemane. Gethsemane. And uh, at Gethsemane, Jesus has this intense time of prayer with the Father. He, he's praying intensely. He's basically saying, it's recorded for us by, by eyewitness, he's, he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, you see, Jesus knows that he's going to be killed soon, that he will be tortured to death, and he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, let's, let's go the other way. If there's any plan B, let's go with plan B. If, if Oprah is right, and there are many ways to God, let's go with that. If Islam is right, and we can do these five pillars, and that makes us right with God, let's do it that way. If, if you could just be good, do good things, and go to church on Sunday, if that will fix it, let's go with that. But of course, there is no other way. Jesus knows that there's one way, and that's him dying, shedding his blood to pay for our sins. That's what's happening. So if we just stop, pause right there in Gethsemane, we recognize that all through Jesus' ministry, people have been trying to put him down. We have cancel culture today, right? You know, canceling things left and right. Well, the same thing was going on in the first century. They were trying to cancel Christ. And the first way they did that is they tried to cancel Christ through accusation. The same thing kind of happens today, right? Uh, somebody will, will do something, and then it gets into the media, and, and everybody sort of starts piling on, it goes viral, sometimes criminal charges are involved, and so th- those get levied, and and then, you know, everybody piles on, just goes everywhere. Sometimes when that happens, you know, it actually goes into the court system, and then it's like a year later, sometimes you find out, oh, none of that was even true, right? But then, you know, it's old news then, nobody really cares, then it's kind of done, sort of like, You know know how that happens. That same kind of thing was happening in the first century. First, they tried to cancel Christ by accusation because they knew what Jesus was saying. And they didn't like it. Really, all through Jesus' three-year ministry, he was saying things that just rankled Jewish leaders. And he did it that last week of his life as well. I mean, think about it. He was saying things like, I and the Father are one. When he would say that, he said that, the Jewish leaders actually grabbed rocks to stone him to death as soon as he said that. He, he would tell people, Your sin, he would heal somebody and say, Your sins are forgiven. Or somebody, he would, would show him an act of kindness, he would say, Your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leaders were like, Whoa, time out, no what? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. And they were right. Jesus said things like, before Abraham was born, I am. And when he said, I am, he actually used the personal name of God that Jewish people didn't even speak. And they wanted to kill him. After the resurrection, he ran into one of his disciples that didn't believe it was true. Remember Thomas. And when Thomas finally saw him, remember what Thomas said? He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't correct him. This was happening all through his ministry. And uh, he also said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. You know, he was saying he was, he was over the law. He also referred to himself all the time as the Son of Man. And that doesn't mean a lot to us, that phrase, Son of Man, but it did to Jewish people because that exact phrase is lifted right out of the pages of the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who said the Son of Man was coming as a king who would rule over all people, all languages, all nations, and his kingdom would never end. Son of Man was the Messiah. And Jesus used that term to refer to himself. And so we we have all that happening. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. That's the charge, that he's claiming to be God. That's called blasphemy. You can't claim that you're God. And so they tried to cancel Christ through accusations. They also tried to cancel Christ through legal uh, charges. Remember, one of the the disciples was going to betray Jesus. He told them it would happen. And, And sure enough, while he was there in the olive grove praying at Gethsemane, here come armed soldiers to arrest him. Well, when they come into the garden, kind of surprise everybody. It's the middle of the night, Thursday night. And Jesus' followers, they're ready to fight for him, and they actually draw first blood. And Jesus says, stop. He allows himself to be arrested. The disciples all flee. And then... They drag Jesus through a series of sort of sham trials in the middle of the night, which was actually illegal by their own law. And that started with the religious leaders. Jesus is taken before Annas, who is a former high priest but very influential in the city. He's taken there. He's mocked, spit on, slapped, punched. Then he's taken to the high priest, the current high priest, Caiaphas. Same treatment, mocked, beaten. Then he's taken to the Sanhedrin. All this is happening in the middle of the night. The Sanhedrin was a court of 70 Jewish men, and he's taken there, same thing, charged with blasphemy, slapped, punched, spit on, mocked. And he's condemned by all those people, but there's a problem. Because Israel is occupied by Rome, the religious leaders don't have the authority to put Jesus to death, and they want him dead. So they take him to the Roman authorities. And that's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. They they take him there. While there... Pilate kind of gets, hey, these are all religious charges, you. Know? but they change the charges. It's no longer blasphemy that they're talking about. They change the charges before the Roman authorities, they say, he's guilty of inciting riots. He's guilty of telling people to not pay their taxes. He's guilty of being a political king who says he will overthrow Rome. And so they make these series of charges in front of Pilate. But Pilate kind of sees through it. He's a politician. He kind of gets what's going on. And so he's kind of, he's looking for a way out. I mean, Jesus is popular with a lot of people, but here all the power brokers in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, they all want him dead. And so he's trying to get out from between all this And so he realizes that another king of the region to the north, Herod, is in town in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and he has Jewish ties. So he actually has Jesus sent to Herod, who's in Jerusalem. And Herod ridicules Jesus, but he understands that there's no political win here. And so after kind of making fun of Jesus, sends him right back to Pilate. So they're trying to cancel Christ through accusation, try to cancel Christ through legal charges, and then they try to cancel Christ through mob pressure. Because when they send him back to Pilate, the Jewish leaders kind of get that Pilate's reluctant, to put him to death. So they get a crowd together outside the seat of justice where, where Pilate serves and they get this crowd that sort of turns into a mob and they start yelling for the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate gets that he's just being railroaded by religious leaders and, and, but the people are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And in a final effort to release Jesus, Pilate comes up with a plan. He's like, okay, I can get out of this. He says, hey, in celebration of the Jewish holiday Passover, I am going to pardon one of the prisoners that's in my custody. And he gives them two options. He says, one, here's one Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, is a known killer, murderer. Everybody knows he's guilty. I can pardon him. Or this man, Jesus, this teacher, this miracle worker, this this one who many of you say is the Messiah of the Jewish people. And what do the people shout? They're stirred up. They're yelling, give to us Barabbas. Release Barabbas. Pardon Barabbas. And then Pilate says, well, what about Jesus? Jesus. And they start yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify, crucify. And he says, why? What wrong has he done? What crime has he committed? And they keep yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. And then they try to cancel Christ by crucifixion. I mean, Pilate. He's in a tough spot, I guess. You know, he's just visiting. He's just there in Jerusalem because during Passover, these religious fanatics, you don't know what's going to happen. Riots can break out. He needs to be there to deal with the situation. He probably can't wait to get home. He can't wait to get through this Passover time to sort of make sure nothing goes completely south. There's no riots. And then he could go back to his comfortable seaside home in Caesarea. He's ready to get out of there. But Pilate does what's politically expedient, and he sentences Jesus to crucifixion. Here's how one of the eyewitnesses, Matthew, records it in Matthew 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium "'and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. "'They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, "'and after twisting together a crown of thorns, "'they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. "'And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' "'They spat on him and took the reed "'and began to beat him on the head.' And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off off him and put on his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. You see what happens? The crowd wins. The, The religious leaders, they get exactly what they wanted. He's sentenced to crucifixion. That starts with a scourging. That's actually not part of the crucifixion. I think Pilate did this in one last ditch effort to have Jesus beaten so severely that maybe the mob would take pity on him and stop crying out for his blood. So he has him scourged. Scourging means you tie somebody to a post. You get a whip, and it's one of those whips like we call a cat of nine tails. It has several ends. At the ends are bones and bits of metal and lead, and they whip the person and just rips the flesh off their back, and so Jesus is tied to a post. They whip him, beat him, till the flesh is just being ripped from his back, ripped from his side, and then he's a bloody mess, and now the process of crucifixion starts. Now he goes to the Romans. Now he's mocked and spit on and a crown of thorns jammed on his head and when the soldiers are done having their sport with him they lead him through the city streets outside the city gate to a hill nearby Jerusalem called Calvary where he's crucified when they get to the hill they actually nail his hands into the crossbeam of the wood. Then they put his feet on top of one another and with one nail pin both of his feet to the pole. Then they lift the pole up with Jesus and then drop it into place. When that happens, not just are his joints kind of shaken apart, but all the weight of his body is ripped in the nails into his hands. And when a person is crucified, what happens is they're hanging there and it's very difficult to breathe suspended by nails in your hands. And so what you have to do is actually push up with with your feet to breathe. So here's Jesus pushing up against the nail in his feet in order to create some room to take in air so that he can breathe, to expand his chest. And then back down, and then when he needs to breathe again, over and over again. The Romans knew what they were doing. They had perfected this way of public execution that would bring maximum suffering, maximum shame, and also be public. So it took people a while to die. That was the whole point. And so Jesus is suspended there. He says some things from the cross. And at some point, somebody puts a sign on top of the pole that says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now he's mocked, hanging there, by the leaders again. He's mocked by the people, the crowd that is assembled to see the execution and, and they're all shouting for him. Hey, so Jesus, you, you healed other people, you saved other people, but you can't save yourself? Come down. The soldiers continue to mock him. Even the two thieves at the beginning both mock Jesus, everybody. Everybody. And he's hanging there for hours. He says a few things, but eventually, after several hours, darkness comes over the land. Matthew, who watched this, says in verse 50 he says, "And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It's over. This veil was, was in the temple, separated where the priests could go, and the Holy of Holies, where only God was, and they would only enter into there through that veil once a year. That's split open. And Jesus dies. And when Jesus cries out and dies, when he breathes his last, it's over. I mean, it's done. The disciples, even though Jesus told them, hey, they're, go- they're going to kill me, they couldn't believe it. They could not reconcile. How could he be the Messiah, the king? How could he be the son of God? And yet people could put him to death. These religious leaders could falsely accuse him and put him to How could this happen? And they're done. They're finished. They have no hope. There are no Christians Friday night. What happens is it's almost sundown Friday. Well, sundown Friday begins the Sabbath day, Saturday. And so the religious leaders, they go to Pilate and say, hey, you know, everybody's here for Passover, Tomorrow is the Sabbath, and we don't want these these guys hanging on a cross, so could you remove them? So Pilate says, okay, he sends some guards out, and what they do is they go, when they want to hasten somebody's death, because crucifixion is all about lengthening people's death, they go to the first thief, and they break his legs. They would break the legs, because with your legs broken, you could not push up and get breath in, and you would suffocate Then they go to the second thief, and they break his legs to hasten his death. But then they come to Jesus, and Jesus is already dead. And so it takes some work to break legs, and so they just grab a spear and shove it up through his rib cage into his heart just to make sure. They know he's dead, but they shove it up there and pull it out just to ensure his death without as much work. We sang about Joseph's tomb. See, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich guy living in Jerusalem, he he actually has the guts to go to Pilate and beg for Jesus' body. A religious leader named Nicodemus, who had had a one-on-one with Jesus during the night one time, he helps Joseph, and they take Jesus' body, and they put it into Joseph's new tomb. They don't have a lot of time because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath starts at sundown, and so they're rushing to make all this happen. So they throw some spices together, and they kind of half uh, get Jesus' body ready for burial. They wrap him in linen. They just don't have time. They throw him in there. And, and the ladies that follow Jesus, the Marys, you know, they're watching all this happen, and, and his body is not really prepared by Jewish custom, and they take note of that, and they're going to come back when the Sabbath is over and fix that. They roll the rock in front of the tomb. The, the Jewish leaders had caught on because they heard a lot of Jesus' teaching that he kept talking about something about three days. And so they're like, hey, hey, Pilate, what we need you to do is we need you to seal this tomb with a government seal. and We need some soldiers to protect this tomb. Otherwise, what might happen is Jesus' followers may come and steal the body and then claim that he rose again. And Pilate says, hey, go do whatever you want. And so they do that. And the gutsy disciples who are still kind of following the action and haven't got out of town yet They're watching all this. See, no Christians, I said, Friday night. There's no Christians on Saturday morning. There's no Christians Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening. But then came Sunday, right? Then came Sunday. And all the efforts to cancel Christ failed because he rose from the dead. Here's how Matthew describes it in Matthew 28.1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him. And became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Behold, I've told you. And when the women see all this, they, they start running to report to the disciples what had happened. When the disciples first hear about it, they don't believe. Because they expected that when somebody died, like all of us expect, that that person would stay dead. But that's not what happened But even after the resurrection, they kept trying to cancel Christ by denying the resurrection. And it started right there. So the guards who had fainted, the women are gone. When they come to and sort of put themselves together, they realize they got a problem. Because Jesus' tomb is open. The angel opened it so we can see the tomb was empty. And so they go into Jerusalem and they report to the chief priests Jesus is gone. The chief priests have a quick meeting and they come up with some funds. And they get some resources together and they bribe the guards to say that the disciples came and stole the body. By the way, that wouldn't be a good enough excuse for the guards. They would be put to death. Anyway, but, but they come up and then the religious leaders say, and hey, if you get in trouble for this, we're going to smooth it over with the governor. You just say the disciples stole the body. Here's the money. We'll take care of everything else. And they do it. That's what happened. And so they deny the resurrection. It's interesting to me because this is the time of year. haven't noticed it as much this year because I haven't been focused as much on media. But every year in the past 20 years, this, this, it's around this time of year that you see all these articles about Christianity or the resurrection. Or you'll see specials you know, or programs about it. And then typically what happens is in the middle of that special or that program, you have some expert. Usually he has an English accent. You know, and then he says something like this, and you hear the same thing from liberal college professors all over the United States. And he'll explain to all of us, this expert, and say, well, what happened? You know, Jesus was a great moral teacher, maybe the greatest moral teacher that ever lived, and then he taught people, and and everybody liked him, or a lot of people did, and so he had very devoted followers, But then after he was gone, they they were kind of lost. But they just kept his story alive. And they kept telling stories about Jesus and stories about Jesus. And then people heard those stories. And then they told those stories to other people. And then they told the stories. And then over time, Jesus' legend grew. And then maybe some fabrications were, were put in there or at least some exaggerations. And so all that happened. And then finally, Several, a few hundred years later, they write the New Testament, and then they write in all those legends of the resurrection that gets written into our Bible, and so now you have a resurrected Jesus. But that's really not history. That's the line of reasoning they use. Every part of that line of reasoning is factually false, every part of it. The New Testament wasn't written a couple hundred years after Christ. The New Testament was written by eyewitnesses who knew Jesus, who lived during his lifetime. That's who wrote the New Testament. It's weird because a lot of people will say, well, you know, I'm not sure about the resurrection because, you know, that's what the Bible tells us. And the Bible, you know, it's 2,000 years old and it's been through several revisions and then the church manipulated with the Bible. You know, we don't really know what the Bible originally said. That is false. We can prove through archaeological evidence that the Bible was written, the New Testament, in the first century. That's becoming clearer and clearer. There's more and more proof all the time because we keep digging up more and more evidence. But nobody says that. We can prove the New Testament was, all of it was written in the first century before any legends could develop. The New Testament was written while people were still alive who knew Jesus or people who were still alive who lived in Jerusalem during that time when all this happened. We know that. Don't listen to the worn-out arguments. And, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, the only reason we know about resurrection is because of the Bible. It's actually not that way. It's because of the resurrection that we even have a Bible. It's because of the resurrection that we have Christianity. Without the empty tomb, there would be no Christianity. Without the empty tomb, there would, there would be no church. Two months after Christ is crucified, there is a booming church in Jerusalem of thousands and thousands of people. Historically, we know this is true. It's also told to us in the New Testament. That would be impossible if right outside the city gates there was a tomb with Jesus' body laying in it, right? Evidence. Evidence. We have eyewitnesses right here. Matthew, an eyewitness, was with Jesus all through his ministry, a former tax collector, right? He saw everything. John, the apostle John, with Jesus, saw everything, wrote an entire book, Matthew and John, about the life of Jesus, firsthand eyewitness accounts. Mark, he was a close associate of the apostle Peter, and he sort of wrote... Everything he knew that Peter told him, so it's secondhand, but he knows all about Peter. Peter, by the way, went on to write his own books, First and Second Peter, and put some of the same stuff. Oh, then you have Luke. He's not an eyewitness, but Luke says, hey, I'm not an eyewitness, so I traveled to Jerusalem and I started interviewing eyewitnesses. He says that at the beginning of his gospel. I look for eyewitness accounts so I can record in chronological order everything that happened everything that we've heard, whether that was right or not. That's the New Testament. It's written by books, by by people like James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, younger than Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until what? Until the resurrection, because Jesus came to James and talked to James. And then all of a sudden, James writes a letter. And by the way, James says, Jesus, yeah, my half-brother, he's the son of God. I've never said that about my brothers. And I can guarantee you, they have never and never will say that about me. Guaranteed. This is what's happening. You see, because of the resurrection, because of the fact of the resurrection, Christianity was born. It was established. But here's the problem. Most Easter Sundays, I spend a large part of my sermon talking about all the evidences for the resurrection. By the way, I love doing that. And some of you know I love it. And I could do that all day. And some of you are thinking, please, Kevin, no, because you've heard me do that. But I don't think that's what we need today. I think everybody can kind of get, yeah, there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. There's more evidence for the death and resurrection of Christ than there is against the death and resurrection of Christ. You can talk about it literally all day long. Some of you have heard me do it. But here's the deal. If you knew Jesus and you watched him die publicly like hundreds of other people did, And then later, Jesus shows up, and he talks to you. Not just you alone, you and your friends. And you knew him before. Then all of a sudden, I just watched this guy die, and now he's talking to us. You would believe, right? I think everybody gets that. Yeah, we would believe. They believed. We would believe. Everybody would believe. That's what we think. And, and, and because here's kind of what we do. We think things like today, we think, well, the resurrection, there's a lot of evidence for the resur- resurrection, so I think the resurrection is probably true. And, and if you're here this morning, probably most people at least think it's probably true. Not everybody here right now, but probably most people are thinking, yeah, it's probably true. True. But, but if you're thinking it's probably true, here's what else you're probably thinking. But if I saw an undeniable miracle today, an undeniable miracle like they did when they saw the resurrection of Christ, well, then I would be 100% convinced. I know it's probably true, but then I would be certain it was true. I'd know. That's how people think. That's how non-Christians think. That's how Christians think. That's interesting because Matthew says something different to us. This is intriguing to me. Matthew, in verse 17, here's what Matthew says. When they saw him, so later, let me fill in the story. He's already appeared to his disciples, minus Judas, and so they've seen the resurrected Christ. Well, now he says he's going to talk to more people. He meets with 500 people at once. He talks to people, meets with people, and then later he shows up with a bunch of people. That's verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. This is amazing that this is in the Bible to me, but some we're doubtful. Amazingly, Matthew's telling us, hey, these people who knew Jesus, knew about Jesus, they saw him die, and then later when he showed up, everybody started worshiping him, but some doubted. By the way, we would never think that way because whether you're a believer or you're a non-believer, you think if you knew Jesus and you watched him die a terrible death, and then he showed up later, you would believe. So think with me about this. Who would write down and say, no, actually, Jesus showed up, the resurrected Christ, and some doubted. Nobody would say that. A non-believer wouldn't say that. A believer wouldn't say it. Who would say that? Somebody who saw it happen because we don't think that would happen. But somebody who saw it happen would know. So the reason it says, hey, by the way, Jesus showed up and people worship, but some doubted. The reason he said Jesus showed up, but some doubted is because you know what happened? Jesus showed up and some doubted. That's why it says it. It's counterintuitive. There's no other reason to put that in there. By the way, if you're just trying to promote a religion, you wouldn't put that in there. Doesn't sound good. But there it is. You see, that's the issue with evidence. All the evidence in the world, as we list it out, and I could take a lot of time doing that, and some of you know, and and some of you get it. It still doesn't bring certainty. You you think through evidence, and it only gets you to, it's probably true. But you can hear a 100 evidences of Christ his resurrection, and nothing else, but you would still be capable of going to bed at night, laying on your bed and thinking, and conjuring up one more question, one more doubt. We can all do that. Even though most of the evidence says something else, we, we would all be able to do that. See, and Please understand me. I'm not saying evidence is not important. I'm not saying evidence doesn't matter. I'm the last guy that would say that. I'm not saying that faith is just closing your eyes and taking a leap in the dark. I am not saying that. So please don't confuse what I'm saying, all right? And by the way, Matthew's not saying that either. And Jesus is not saying that. When he told Thomas, oh, come touch my hands. Reason... Figuring it out, looking at evidence, it brings you to probability, but it's commitment or decision that brings you to certainty. What I'm saying is you'll never be completely sure without some level of commitment to investigate it more deeply, some level of decision. So many here say it probably happened, but you're not convinced enough that it did happen to to base your entire life on it, I I understand where you're coming from there. Because you can can see all the evidence, but you could still want one more piece, uh, just a little bit more. It's kind of like a light switch. You can see a light switch on the wall, right? But if you've never been there before, you can see that there's a light hanging in the middle of the room, but you don't know for sure that flipping, that it's connected. Unless you took the walls apart. But if you can't take the walls apart and see where the wires are running, what do you do? Well, the way you know is you flip the switch, right? This illustration gets zero traction, okay? But, so let me use a more powerful illustration, all right? Let's say dynamite. My brother Monty and his wife Sherry were visiting a couple weeks ago with my mom. And Sherry grew up in the mining town of Colorado called Creed. It's amazing what you can get your hands on if you know the right people. (laughs) So, no, this, this is fake. But what if we didn't know it was fake? Okay, it looks like dynamite. So, if you didn't know, and by the way, this could be a life or death decision, right? Just like the resurrection is a life or death decision for us today. And so if we didn't know, we would, say, we would start investigating. Hey, Kevin, where'd you get that thing? Where'd it come from? How'd it get in the building? Who would give you a stick of dynamite? You would ask a lot of questions. We would say, hey, does it say anything on it? Is it labeled? Does it say anything about itself? What's going on? We'd want to know all that. And I could answer all those questions, and you would probably be sure. But how would you know with certainty? Well, just one way, right? You would light it. So this is fake, so this isn't going to do anything. But, uh, whoa, I guess it will do something. Tim, the fake ones, are they supposed to light like this? Because, you know, I really wasn't expecting that. So we light it. We make the decision to step forward. We make the decision, we pull the trigger, we light it, and here's what's happened. When we make the decision, when we make the commitment, then we will know with certainty. Then we'll know. And as it gets down, we'll get ready and just kind of, oh, this is fake. Dave, make sure that gets out. It's fake. So we know with certainty, oh, that's fake. The fuse, it didn't explode it. But here's the problem. That was a fake piece of dynamite. The resurrection is real. And after we pile up all the evidences, when we get to where we think it's probably true, I'm telling you, you need to take a step of decision, and then you will find the certainty that you're you're looking for. If you do it sincerely, if you turn to him sincerely, we'll see the results In our lives. And so, massive amounts of evidence. Even with that, we only find certainty when we decide to put our trust in Jesus. And then we will know not just probably it's true because of all the evidence, you'll know for certain that it's true. And today, the question is: Are you canceling Christ? The resurrection is a fact of history. You know, even non-Christians talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But Don't want to go there, but here's the problem. You could pile it all up, but I'm telling you, move beyond probability by deciding to trust in Jesus. There you'll find certainty, and here's what I'm talking about. Here's the whole message of the Bible, Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. It's all about this one thing. God exists three in one, Father, Son, Spirit, one God. He's the creator. We can look around with our common sense at the world or without us and, and know that it was created with design. It's not a result of an explosion. It's not chaotic. It's balanced. It moves with precision. We know a designer was involved. That's God. But then God also created us. And he, cre- he created life. We can't create life. God created life. And he created us. And when he created us, he says, he created us in his image. And what that means is he created us that we could be self-aware. We could think about ourselves and think about the world around us and reason with our minds. And he created us that way so that we could be aware of him. And so after he created us, he made himself known. He not only revealed himself in general revelation, which means look around, we know there's a creator God, he revealed himself to us specifically. He did that specifically through revealing himself through the one greatest person in all of history, the most well-known person in history, Jesus Christ. No matter what religion you are, the number one most well-known person in the world, Jesus. And he revealed himself specifically through the Bible. The number one most recognized book in the world. The most read book. The most sold book in the world. It's first on the New York Times bestseller list every single year if they bothered to include it. But they don't because it never changes. Always number one. He's not doing this in a corner. He's letting us know. He creates it with free will. He doesn't make us robots. He doesn't make us where we have to follow him. He creates us where we can choose not to follow him. So then if we have a choice, then we actually have connection, free will. And so he gives us free will, but along with free will means that we have the option to not follow God, and that's what all of us has done. We have all sinned against God. We've all done our own thing, acting like we're in charge, not God's in charge. So we've all sinned against him, because he told us what's right and wrong, and we've all done wrong. And people will plead, well, I've done some good things, but good things don't fix wrongs. Good things are what we're supposed to do. We don't get credit for that. That's just what we're supposed to do. It doesn't pay for the bad things. There's just one way. That's what Jesus was praying about at Gethsemane. That he would live a perfect life with no sin. Only one that walked the planet that did it. And then... Even though he's creator God, he would allow his own creation to torture him to death, to mock him, slap him around, spit on him. He allowed all that to happen. And he did it because of love, because he loves us. He did it because we've all sinned against God and because God is perfectly just. He's a perfectly just judge our sin has to be punished. All sin has to be punished, all sin in the universe. And the punishment for that sin is separation from a righteous and holy God forever. But in his love for us, he made a way. Jesus came voluntarily, gave up his life to die for us, so that we have an opportunity to be with God forever, to be forgiven once and for all, not sacrifice over sacrifice, not system over system, just one once and for all. The new covenant in his blood, the new contract with God. If we'd come in faith, we have to do it his way. There's only one way. That's what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the way we do that is by trusting Christ understanding we're, we've sinned against God, that we deserve separation from God, but placing our trust in Christ, who he is and what he did, and that that's how we can find forgiveness and connection with God forever. It's a gift. We can't earn it. He's offering it. Now, all of us, fit in to a category. And I want to help all of us, just in in the next minute here, I want to help everyone figure out exactly where they stand before God. And so I want you to cooperate with me here. I want everybody to grab a card in the chair rack in front of it. Just everybody grab one. We're just going to go through this little test. Just play along with me. Humor me. Come on. We're almost wrapped up. Just grab one of these. I want you to flip it to the blue side. And then down at the bottom of the blue side, there's an ABCD. You see it? Nobody sees it. Do you, see the, do you see it? A, B, C, D, on the blue side, down at the bottom. And here's what, now I'm going to give you four categories. All of us fit into one of these four categories. I want you to figure out where you fit. Okay? A stands for I already believe. That means before you came in here, you had already established a relationship with Christ. Do not mark A thinking that I've always believed because nobody has always believed. Nobody has always been a Christian. You have to make a decision to become a believer. So you need to do that. A, if you already believed before you came, that means you could point back to a time where you understood your sin against God and what Christ did for you. That's A. If not A, then maybe B. B stands for believing today. That means today, hey, I get it. I'm listening to what's been said, what we've been singing about. I understand it's all coming true, uh, all kind of coming together for me. And maybe I didn't fully understand it before, even though I've been to church and stuff, but I get it today. I'm believing. I'm putting my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. I got nothing else. That's... B that you're making this decision for the first time as far as you know today. Now, C stands for, hey, you know, I'm not there yet, but this is kind of interesting, or I'm thinking about it, or maybe God's working on my heart. So C stands for, I'm considering it. Maybe, okay? I'll think about it. C, if that's you, Mark, C, considering. And then there's a D. D is just for intellectual honesty, because I know some of you here, you're just not interested. So don't want to believe. Don't wanna know any more about it, not interested. You know, count me out. Don't buy it, just mark mark D. Just to be honest with yourself. And here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to mark a card and I want you to turn it in. If your name's on it, if you've marked B or C, we will send you a packet of information. There's actually some of these packets here. We'll mail it to you if you put your mailing address. If you don't trust us with your mailing address, then you can take it down here to either side, drop your B or C card, if that's the way you marked it, into the bucket and grab one of those packets on your way out. Otherwise, we'll send one to you. That's what I want you to do. And I just want you to be honest with yourself. Where do you stand with God? Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, God, we thank you that, that you created us. You gave us life. But Lord, you also love us, and we've used uh, the freedom that you've given us to, to sin against you, to do wrong things, but you loved us still, and you made a way for us to be completely forgiven by someone else paying for our sin at great price, your own son. God, thank you for that greatest gift. Thank you for his death. And Lord, thank you so much for his resurrection three days later that proved everything he said was true. Thank you in Christ's name.